Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is Steve Hadley, the Republican foreign policy figure and former National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush. Throughout his long and impressive career, Steve worked for four American presidents, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. He's now chairman of the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace, a member of the board of directors of the Council on Foreign Relations, and a partner at Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel, an international consulting firm Steve co-founded with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Defense Secretary Bob Gates. Steve Hadley, thank you for joining me on the director's chair. Nice to be with you. Nice to see you again. Steve, let's start with your background. You were born in Ohio. Your dad was an electrical engineer and your mum stayed at home with you and your siblings. Tell us a bit about growing up in Ohio. Well, this was Ohio in the 1950s. This was the post-World War II generation. And it was a time when the country had a lot of confidence, uh, was uh, moving into a period of prosperity. It was a pretty conventional upbringing, pretty isolated. I remember I never really left the country until I was in law school. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a, a pretty relatively provincial upbringing. And you went to Yale Law School, I think, at around the time the Clintons were studying there. Is that right? Yes. Hillary Clinton was a classmate of mine. Uh-huh. She was in my constitutional law small group. She was a wonderful figure, had a great laugh and a wonderful smile, and introduced me to a man who was sort of reddish hair and mm-hmm. had overalls and a white t-shirt. And she said, I think this man is going places. Meet Bill Clinton. There he was. And did you feel at the time that he was going places and they were going places? Were they a kind of a golden couple that, that you could imagine doing amazing things or, or, or was it not apparent to you at that time? I didn't really know him particularly well. Mm. You know, he, they were a pretty trendy, very in-crowd kind uh, <laughs> up at Yale Law School. I was in Navy ROTC, had short hair and uh, horn rim glasses. So it was a, we didn't run quite in the same circles. But Hillary really had a presence yeah. about her that, you know, made you think she's really special. Yeah. She's really going places. And of course, at that point, she'd already made a, uh, a statement uh, in terms of her commencement address at Wellesley College, where she reproofed uh, Senator Edmund Brooke. Uh, so she was already a, a, a political figure in some sense by the time she arrived at Yale Law School, and she had a sense about her that really set her apart from most of the rest of us. Now, I read that you became interested in going to Washington after you read Alan Drury's political novel, Advise and Consent. And Drury (laughs) was a reporter in the Senate during the Second World War, where he watched FDR and and Harry Truman and other figures. I also enjoyed that book when I was a young man, as it happens. So what happened? You read this book and you thought, politics sounds more, more fun to me than law? Politics sounded like fun. Serving in government sounded like fun. I had, uh, like a lot of Midwestern people do, I had taken a train trip on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad from then Cleveland, Ohio, Mm -hmm. down to uh, Washington, D.C., saw the sights, was really excited by the city. So that, plus the Alan Drury Brook, said to me, you know, Washington is a place I would like to work and government is a place where I would like to serve. 
So you went to Washington, got on the train and, and you, you went to Washington. You did a tour of duty in the US Navy. You arrived and you worked in the Pentagon Comptroller's Office, if I'm right. And from 1974, you worked at the White House with Brent Scowcroft. Now, last month, my guest on the director's chair was Ambassador Nick Burns, who also worked for Scowcroft. And of course, Brent Scowcroft's protégés are scattered all over Washington, D.C. Why was Mr. Scowcroft such an effective national security advisor? He really defined the role, and I can say a little bit about how he did that. But he then served in the role twice, Mm -hmm. and his personality and character were perfectly suited for the model that he established for the role. If you think about it, his sequence was he was asked to be national security advisor under Gerald Ford when Henry Kissinger, who had had both Secretary of State hat and national security advisor hat, was asked to give up the national security advisor hat and simply be Secretary of State full-time. Brent became national security advisor for the uh, term of uh, Gerald Ford. Afterwards, he served on the Tower Commission, which Mm -hmm. was asked by President Reagan to investigate how it was that U.S. government traded arms for hostages with Iran. In the result of that report, it was basically recommendations for renovating, if you will, the National Security Council staff. And in the course of it, that report wrote a profile of what is the job of National Security Advisor and how do you do that job? And Brent basically wrote that section himself. I was the scribe. Then, of course, when George H.W. Bush asked him to serve as his National Security Advisor, Brent had an opportunity to put in practice the role he described in the Tower Commission report, which was a role of the National Security Advisor as an honest broker Mm -hmm. running a transparent process in which all cabinet secretaries have an opportunity to express their views to the president, allow the president to make decisions, and then implement those decisions. That's the first role of the National Security Advisor. The second one, of course, is providing confidential advice to the president. The role Brent described and the way he did it was a merging of the requirements and parameters of the role and the personality of the character of the man. Brent was honest. He was able to obtain and retain the confidence of his national security principles. He was a person who was comfortable working off stage and behind the scenes, didn't vie with the Secretary of State for the spotlight, had his ego well in hand, and had basically a motto that if something succeeded, it was to the credit of the president or a cabinet secretary. And if something failed, it was because the National Security Advisor failed to coordinate the process. Mm-hmm. He was a perfect match uh, between uh, his character and personality and the role he was playing as National Security Advisor. All right. Now, during George H.W. Bush's administration, you worked in the Pentagon on defense policy issues concerning NATO, nuclear weapons, and arms control. Tell us a bit about working for President George H.W. Bush and for Dick Cheney as Defense Secretary. When I came over to the Pentagon originally with Secretary of Defense designate Tower, Mm -hmm. and Tower was not confirmed by the Senate, Uh, I got a phone call saying I should see the new Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, in his office. So I came down figuring he was going to fire me. So I walked in. He told me to sit down. I remained standing. He said, look, Mr. Secretary, you deserve someone you know and have confidence in this job, and you don't know me from Adam. So thanks very much. (laughs) And I turned around and headed out the door. And he said, no, no, come back. He said, "I've, 
I talked to Scowcroft, who you work for in the Ford administration. He says, you're a good guy. I'd like you to stay. One of the things he then said was, I need you and Paul Wolfowitz, who I worked for at the time, to do policy. Mm-hmm. Congressional relations, leave to my colleague, uh, Dave Gribben. Public affairs, leave to another one of his uh, wonderful colleagues, who's now with NBC News, Pete Williams. Mm-hmm. And he says, the politics, he says, you leave to me. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. Secretary, because he was Secretary <laughs> of Defense at the time, if that's the job, I think I can do it. Mm. So it was a policy-focused job, and it was facilitated by the fact that both Scowcroft, Cheney, and Baker knew each other well from longstanding, had a lot of confidence between them, and all three respected the leadership of George H.W. Bush. So it was a perfect setting. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, the Defense Department has the Office of Secretary of Defense, which is largely civilians, and then the military. And one of the historical problems is fights between the defense civilians and the defense military. I remember Cheney and, and Colin Powell, who was his chairman of the Joint Chiefs, called Paul Wolfowitz, myself, and, and Powell's staff together and said, look, here's how it's going to work. If we go across the river to an interagency meeting and OSD and the, and the military are on the same page, the civilians and the military, mm-hmm. we have two votes. And if you guys are on different pages, we have zero votes. So whenever we go across the river, we're going to be in, uh, in agreement. Mm-hmm. And if you guys can't agree, come see Colin and me. We'll resolve the issue and give you your instructions. Mm-hmm. So the framework that Cheney established mm-hmm. And the framework really that George H.W. Bush established with his top advisors Mm. was one that was very congenial, resulted in a very effective process. And I think that contributed to what Jim Baker has called the most successful one-term presidency in the history of the United States. And if you think of all that George H.W. Bush accomplished during his four years, it's a pretty apt description. Steve, there's a new biography out of Jim Baker written by Peter Baker, no relation of the New York Times, and Susan Glasser of the New Yorker. A lot of people think of Jim Baker as a kind of a gold standard as Secretary of State, a tough, pragmatic dealmaker. What were your observations of Jim Baker in that role? I uh, used to travel with him. Jim Baker was very smart. We, he did a lot of negotiations with the Soviets, later the Russians, about arms control. And of course, there's an interagency group that vets instructions that our negotiators have. Mm-hmm. And Jim Baker never wanted to have a problem about doing something in a negotiation that the Secretary of Defense, my boss, Dick Cheney, might not like, or Brent Scowcroft, for that matter. So when, when Baker would go to negotiate with Shepard Natsa, the Russian Mm -hmm. Soviet and then Russian foreign minister, he would take the interagency with him. Mm -hmm. And if he wanted to make a move with Shevardnadze, he would bring us all together. And he said, now, tomorrow, here's what I'm going to do. You all go call your bosses. And if they have any problems, let me know. And we'll let the president of the United States decide. Baker was a, a superb worker of the organization in order to enable himself to do his job for the president. As Secretary of State, he knew that his influence came not from the fact that he was Secretary of State, but that he had the ear of the President of the United States and was known to have the ear of the President of the United States. He was a tough negotiator, but he was very smart in how he negotiated. And when we would get together the night before a meeting he would have with Shevardnadze, he would always want to know 
What is Shevardnadze's problem? What are his political concerns? Mm-hmm. And how can I shape my arguments so as to convince him that what I want for American interests is actually something he should want for Soviet or then Russian interests? He was always trying to put himself in the shoes of the person across the table and come up with arguments that would persuade. He was prepared to be plenty tough uh, when he needed to be, but he really thought the way to do it was not to compel, but to persuade. And he was a terrific persuader. Tell us a bit more about George H.W. Bush as, as a boss, as a human being. You, you saw him up close as president. What was his operating style? He's a wonderfully decent person was very unassuming. And the first time I met him, actually, I was taken by Dick Cheney to Camp David, which is the mm-hmm, presidential mm-hmm. retreat, because we were going to brief the president on ballistic missile defense, and I was supposed to do the briefing. So, you know, we were we waited around, and uh, I gave the briefing, and it seemed to go well. And afterwards, there was a break, so I went to the men's room, and some tall figure comes up next to me, is using the urinal next to me. I look up and it's the president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was a little bit undone by all that, you know, (laughs) he couldn't have been nicer. Very approachable, very down to earth, uh, a person who showed a lot of respect to everybody, whether senior or junior. But someone who is in terms of the foreign policy aspects of the presidency could not have been better prepared. He had a, a wonderful team behind him. But he was a man who had his own views, had had a lot of experience, and was prepared to make decisions and prepared to lead. And that's, of course, what the job is. Now, during the Clinton administration, you worked in the private sector. You weren't uh, lured back into, into government to work for your Yale Law School classmate, Hillary. But you returned to the White House when George W. Bush was elected and you you served as Deputy National Security Advisor in his first term and National Security Advisor in his second term. How would you compare Bush 43 and Bush 41 as a boss and as a person, as, a, as an operator? It's a little hard for me to say because, you know, I didn't work directly for George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, I worked very directly and closely with George W. Bush. They are very different personalities. George W. Bush is a business person, and he really comes at problems with that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. He's also, I think, much more a politician, comfortable as a politician. You Mm -hmm. know, his his father, George H. W. Bush, is very interesting. You know, a really Connecticut blue blood, father Mm -hmm. a senator, went to Yale. Everybody thought, you know, he'd have a career in Wall Street. And he takes his family to West Texas to get into the oil business. And of course, that's where George W. Bush grows up. So George H.W. Bush, in some sense, never lost his Connecticut roots. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush never lost his Texas roots. And it brought, made them really very different personalities, very different personalities when they became president of the United States. You were in the White House, Steve, on September 11th, 2001. Tell us your memories of that day. Not a lot of memories. Uh, You know, I'm a lawyer and I've spent my whole life taking notes of meetings and conversations and all the rest. And in the retrospective on 9-11, someone said, well, let's see your notes. And I realized that I did not have a single note Mm -hmm. of that day. 
And uh, we were in the Situation Room having a meeting. Condi Rice was in the chair. She was National Security Advisor. I was deputy. We were having a senior staff meeting. We heard that a plane had hit one of the Twin Towers building, and we thought a civil aviation pilot is sort of straight off course mm-hmm. and has hit the building. And then, of course, a short time later, we heard that it was a second plane that hit the building. Mm. And at that point, we knew something had happened that was much different. Mm. And at that point, the whole process became operational, finding out what had happened, making sure this was not the first of a series of attacks, which, of course, it turned out to be, getting all of the airplanes that were in the air at the time down on the ground, taking care of uh, getting the president of the United States, make sure he was safe and secure. We were operating all the time. I had an open line to George Tenet, then CIA director, so that I could talk instantaneously with him and he with me as well. And I could then relay it to the vice president who was in the president emergency operations center, trying to choreograph all of this and keep in touch with President Bush, who was, of course, out of the, the city at the time. So it was a completely operational experience. And in a way, I think none of us who were involved in that end of it, I remember Condi Rice said she didn't really appreciate what 9-11 was like for most Americans Mm -hmm. until she happened to some weeks later to go to our embassy in Paris and saw on the wall pictures of 9-11, pictures of the buildings, pictures of the people running for their lives in the streets of New York with all the black smoke and all Mm -hmm. the rest. You know, we, in some sense, I think, did not really see what the American people saw Mm. because we were we were trying to get the country in shape to withstand and recover uh, this uh, enormous blow. And also to respond. And in December 2001, the United States, along with its allies, including Australia, invaded Afghanistan in order to dismantle Al Qaeda remove the Taliban from power. And there was enormous public support for that war. And of course, it was waged pursuant to a UN Security Council resolution. And in coalition with a very large number of countries, the United States quickly overthrew the regime. And yet, of course, the conflict dragged on and became America's longest war and indeed Australia's longest war. When you look back on it now, why didn't it turn out as we planned? Well, one of the things is this was a war that was thrust upon us, not a war that we planned for, prepared for it, and initiated at our initiative. The country was attacked. Mm. uh, And we told the Taliban government then in power that they should surrender al-Qaeda, shut down their training camps, and separate themselves from us and throw them out of the country. And they would not do so. And the intelligence community was telling us at the time that this was the first of what would be a series of mass casualty attacks, some of which would involve weapons of mass destruction. So the president decided that if the Taliban would not turn over al-Qaeda and dismantle their infrastructure to assure us there could not be further attacks, we would have to go in, overturn the Taliban regime, Mm -hmm. and then route out al-Qaeda ourselves Mm -hmm. along with our close allies Uh, which is what we did. We could have at that point, once we had had disrupted the Al-Qaeda's ability to attack us again, we could have done what we did after the Mm -hmm. Soviets were thrown out of of Afghanistan by the Mujahideen. We could have come home. But we saw after that experience in the 1990s 
as Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, descended into civil war and became a safe haven for Al Qaeda with the result that we were hit on 9-11. We thought we couldn't simply walk away. We had to try to help the people of Afghanistan establish a government which would allow them to control their territory and make sure that it would never again be used as a safe haven for terrorists to threaten the United States or our friends and allies. That turned out to be a much more difficult process than any of us anticipated. This is a country which was one of the world's poorest at the time, had very little in terms of either physical or human infrastructure. And I think the problem there was probably we underestimated the problem and overestimated our ability to deal with it. That having been said, we are at a position where uh, the fighting is really being done by the Afghans. America is just in a support role. An enormous amount has been accomplished in terms of helping the Afghan people establish a much more democratic and prosperous society. And there are peace talks going on right now, which if they were to result in a settlement that could preserve the essence of the Afghan Republic, preserve the gains that have been made in terms of rights of women and education and healthcare and all the rest. If we could get that kind of outcome, it would be success for all of us who put so much effort into it. And I want to say one thing, if I could, how important at that time after 9-11 it was to have allies who stood with us. Mm You may remember that on the Sunday after 9-11, there was a memorial service at National Cathedral in Washington. And one of the speakers was your ambassador, Michael Thawley. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went up to the podium and he talked about uh, this, the attack on America and how this was now a common fight for all of us against uh, terrorism. And at the end, he said, as for the position of Australia, Australia stands with its mates. And he stepped down off the pulpit. And I cannot tell you how much that meant, I think, for the president of the United States, but for all Americans to have a close ally around the other side of the world from Mm -hmm. us say, we stand with you at this hour of tragedy. And of course, stayed with us through the difficult times in Afghanistan to this day. The most consequential decision, I guess, that President Bush made in the foreign policy sphere in which you were involved was the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. When you look back on the costs of the Iraq war in terms of blood and treasure, but also opportunity costs, do you think that was a good decision? Based on what we knew at the time or what we believed at the time, I think it's a very understandable decision. You know, a lot of people say it was a war of choice. I think it was a war of last resort. We had spent 12 years under three administrations trying to get Saddam Hussein to comply with 16 UN Security Council resolutions that told him to disclose and destroy his weapons of mass destruction, stop supporting terror, stop invading his neighbors, and stop terrorizing his own people. And he did not do so. And he did not do so in the, in the face of four different sanctions regimes, probably three different inspection regimes, dumb sanctions, smart sanctions, smarter sanctions, no-fly zone enforced by allied aircraft over the southern part of his country, a resolution by the U.S. Congress adopted under the Clinton administration in 1998 that made regime change in Iraq the policy of the United States. So... We had a military buildup. We used diplomacy to try to coerce 
Saddam Hussein to comply with those resolutions. And in the end of the day, primarily because at the end, France, Germany, and Russia broke with us and said they would not support any kind of further action against Saddam Hussein, the president had to make a decision. Do you take our troops that had been put in position to strengthen our diplomacy? Do you say, all right, Saddam, you win, we'll take our troops home, and you can defy 17 UN Security Council resolutions and the international community, but that's okay. President of the United States decided he couldn't do that. In retrospect, had we known there were no weapons of mass destruction there, particularly no nuclear, ongoing nuclear program, I think there's no question that uh, the president, even if he had wanted to, would not have been able to take the country to war. But that's not what we thought at the time. In 2005, the president appointed you as national security advisor. So you are now sitting in the office once occupied by Brent Scowcroft and your old boss, Condoleezza Rice, was promoted to Secretary of State. How would you rate Condoleezza Rice as a foreign policymaker and a Secretary of State? I'd rate her very high. First reason is because the first test of a Secretary of State is do they understand that their power and influence comes from the President of the United States? Mm -hmm. This is something Jim Baker knew well. Mm -hmm. And secondly, are they able as Secretary of State to win and hold the confidence of the president of the United States. And Condi excelled on both of those points. She understood she needed to stay close to the president, and she uh, had the president's respect and confidence the whole time through. And she made sure that she kept it. And quite frankly, one of the jobs of the national security advisor is to encourage that kind of confidence between cabinet secretaries and the president. You know, it's very easy as national security advisor because you're with the president with more hours a day than probably anybody else. If you want to undercut a cabinet secretary, it's very easy to do. And unfortunately, from time to time, national security advisors have gotten competitive with their secretaries of state and mm -hmm. have done just that. My view was my job was just the opposite, to try to encourage a good relationship between the cabinet secretaries and the president and to encourage him to invest confidence in them as I tried to help them be worthy of that confidence. That's, uh, I think, something that Condi understood. We worked together on it, and she had his confidence until her, the last day we were all in office. All right. Now, in a couple of weeks, there's an election for President of the United States, and the candidates are President Trump and Vice President Biden. I know that as chairman of the US Institute of Peace, you stay out of partisan politics. So I'm not going to ask you to endorse either of those candidates. Although if you want to make some news for the director's chair, you're welcome to do so, Steve. But let me ask you a more general question, if I can. When you go into the ballot box on November the 3rd this year, or when you vote for president in any cycle, what are the qualities that you look for in Commander-in-Chief when you put your mark on the ballot paper? Well, there are a lot of them. I happen to believe that character counts, mm -hmm. that character matters, and that uh, if you're President of the United States, there are not a lot of constraints on you in many ways. And we've had presidents who've gotten into trouble. The Watergate is, the, in some sense, the best example with President Nixon. Mm. So I think one of the things people need to do is to think about somebody who is a person of integrity, and character, uh, and who will uh, tell them the truth about what's going on in the country. Secondly, you know, in any administration, the president is really the chief strategist 
He's got a lot of advisors, but in the end of the day, the president is the chief strategist. And so a president who has a sense of strategy uh, is, a, I think, a very important thing. Uh, thirdly, president needs to be someone who is willing to make decisions and is comfortable making decisions, is prepared once having made a decision to move on and live with the consequences. Two other things. One, to be someone who is the self-confidence to bring good people around them to work with in the administration uh, and then to listen to them. Mm. And finally, it helps for a president to be a good communicator who able to explain things to the American people. Uh, and a sense of humor doesn't hurt. I remember one point, Condi and I were in the Oval Office with the president and the vice president, and somebody was there as well. And the president said, let me tell you how this works. He said, if you flunk out of Yale, you get to be vice president. If you go to Yale and are a C student, you get to be president. <laughs> and if you go to a fancy school and you get A's like Condi and Steve, you get to work for the two of us. <laughs> and I think that's what tolls is you, one, a president with a sense of humor, two, a president with a lot of confidence, and three, a president willing to sort of reach out to people who he thinks can help him uh, with knowledge and understanding and being willing to listen to them. But in the end of the day, being willing to make decisions him or herself and take responsibility for those decisions. Because that is... I think a very important point as well, to be willing to take responsibility. When the president made his decision to change our strategy in Iraq in January of 2008 and announced the so-called surge strategy, that speech begins by him saying, we have misplayed and mishandled the post-invasion period in Iraq. It has been too costly, too many people have died, and I take full responsibility. We need to do something different, and that's the strategy he announced that evening. So being willing to take responsibility is part of the job. All right, let me ask you about a couple of policy issues, Steve. First of all, COVID. When you were Deputy National Security Advisor and National Security Advisor, you were responsible for preparing the United States for all kinds of security challenges. And of course, in the Bush administration, you had to grapple with SARS. If you fast forward to COVID, your country has just passed a, a grim milestone of 210,000 dead. Have you been disappointed with America's response to COVID and has it shown up any frailties in your system that, that the next president needs to really work on? You know, it's hard to know. And in some sense, it's too soon to tell. And I'll tell you why. One, just in terms of the data, it is obviously surprising to me that the death toll and the incidence of the cases in the United States of America is so high compared to other countries. We need to sort of try to figure out why that is the case. Secondly, it's not yet clear exactly what is the right approach. You know, some of the countries that did the most severe and successful lockdowns, once they opened up, you see it in Europe today, COVID is coming back, and I think the incidence in Europe as a whole is now higher than the United States. So we haven't figured out how's the best way to both live with this virus in one sense, to address as aggressively we can the health aspects, but still try to contain and keep our economies going. We haven't figured out the formula even yet, and I think we're going to be at this for another six months or so. Second thing that will be a test is how quickly we get a vaccine. 
it's really too soon. We're still in the middle of this, uh, at least, regrettably so. And I think once we get on top of both the health and economic aspects, we've then got a lot of lessons to be learned from this and a lot of retrospective. And I think we need kind of a 9-11 type commission to look back and say, what went wrong? What did we learn? What do we need to do to make sure that we never have to go through this again? All right, let me ask you about China. You've spent your whole professional life in the US foreign policy and national security community. And the thinking of that community on China has hardened very substantially in recent years. Where do you think US policy on China will go in the next 10 years? Not clear, but I want to a little bit pay tribute to you and your institute because you were kind enough to host me about three plus years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a stiff wire brush about China from some of your folks, indeed some of your younger people. (laughs) And it was a wake-up call to me. I think the change in U.S. elite opinion and U.S. public opinion on China in the last three or four years has been dramatic and faster than sort of any comparable change in attitudes in foreign policy that I've seen. I think we have now woken up to the China challenge. I think Xi Jinping did us a favor by putting aside the so-called hide your power and bide your time and being much more aggressive economically, military, and diplomatically because it was a wake-up call. And what it woke up was a sleeping dragon, which was not China, but it was the United States and Australia and increasingly Europe. So I think it's, uh, it's actually been a useful thing. We now understand that We are in a much more competitive relationship with China. We have to do some things to control technology leakage. We need to reduce some of our dependencies on China in terms of supply chains. There's a lot of, we need to do some investments so that we are uh, at the cutting edge of these new technologies like artificial intelligence that are going to reshape how we live and reshape our militaries. There is an agenda that has been developed. So but I think we're early on. We've, we've had a bit of a strategic surprise. We went into strategic shock. We now, I think, have begun to recover. I think we're in the process mm-hmm. of developing a strategy, which has to do with what we need to do at home to put ourselves, all of us, in a position to compete too effectively, what we need to do to push back on China, and what we need to do to work together to try to deal with this challenge, which is going to be difficult for all of us to manage. I think we're in the process of doing that. Uh, I think we're teetering somewhere between people who have now agreed that China is a strategic competitor. Some people think China is increasingly an adversary. I hope we don't go to the point where we view each other as enemies. I think where we are is we've got to recognize we're in a strategic competition. In some of those areas, it's a competition where we need to win and we need to put ourselves in a position to do so. But I think at the same time, we also manage that competition so that we don't have to completely decouple our economies, which would be costly for our both, and that we don't back ourselves into a permanent confrontation or military conflict. That's a lose-lose for everybody. So we've got to compete, win where we have to, manage the competition, and still allow for some space for cooperation on things like pandemics and climate change, where it's in the interests of all of us to be working together to deal with these global challenges. I think that's where I hope we head. 
All right, Steve, for the final question, I want to ask you about foreign leaders that you've encountered over your career who've impressed you. You've spoken a lot about some of the giants of recent US foreign policy that you worked with, the two Bushes and James Baker and Brent Scowcroft and Condi and others. But in your long career, who did you work with or who did you see across the negotiating table that really impressed you? Is there someone that you you thought, wow, that was really a consequential leader or an interesting character? Well, so there are a lot of them. You know, I think, quite frankly, historically, Gorbachev is a fascinating figure. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure a lot of Russians and uh, vilify him today. He was a partner with Mitterrand and Bush and Thatcher and Cole in ushering us out of this period of the Cold War, which was an existential threat to both countries and to both peoples, and to exit that Cold War in a way without firing a shot. And that's a remarkable achievement. And I think Thatcher certainly was remarkable. Cole was remarkable. Mitterrand, I had a chance to deal with all of them. We were lucky to have those leaders, including Gorbachev, in place at that momentous time in our history. I'm a big fan of Tony Blair. Saw him interact with President Bush uh, a lot. Uh, A wonderfully gifted politician, a wonderful speaker. A big fan of Angela Merkel. A very different style. You know, it's been interesting to watch her deal with these wide range of personalities, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, uh, Donald Trump, Mm. outlasted two and maybe outlast (laughs) all three, Uh, but a remarkable leader and a very approachable person. I've been very lucky to serve in the administrations I've served with the people for whom I worked and to have had a small seat on the corridors of power and on the ringside at history to watch some of these remarkable personalities. Well, Steve, as usual, you finish on a modest note. I want to thank you for taking us on this journey from Toledo, Ohio, to the White House with stop-offs at Yale and Camp David and, of course, Sydney. Thank you for visiting the Institute a couple of years ago, and thank you for joining me today on The Director's Chair. Always nice to be with you. Thanks so much, Michael. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove, with production assistance from Madeline Neist. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.